Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Crossing to the Other Side. It's based upon the lectionary readings for June 24, 2018. The Bible contains its fair share of challenging questions, but this week's gospel reading is particularly full of zingers. The lection is from Mark's gospel, and the miracle it describes, Jesus' calming of a stormy sea, is one of the most dramatic of the New Testament. The setting is the Sea of Galilee, a body of water 680 feet below sea level, surrounded by hills and prone to sudden violent windstorms. The time is evening. After a long day spent preaching to the multitudes, Jesus is curled up at the stern of a boat, sleeping soundly as his disciples steered the vessel. All at once the winds pick up, huge waves lash the boat, and the disciples, seasoned fishermen though they are, fear for their lives. In a desperation bordering on fury, they rouse the still-sleeping Jesus. Teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? Jesus says nothing, but he stands up, rebukes the wind, and calms the sea. Then he turns to his stunned disciples and responds to their question with a couple of his own. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples don't answer him. Instead, Mark writes, they fear a great fear. Who is this man? They finally ask each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. Don't you care? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Who is this man? Four questions. I call them zingers because they challenge the way I practice my faith. I also call them zingers because they dredge up old religious muck in my heart, muck that prevents my crossing over from fear, suspicion, uncertainty, to courage, trust, and curiosity. Like some of you, I grew up with mere lethal doses of a fear-not-Christianity, a Christianity of perpetual triumph and victory. It was a Christianity of happily ever after or else, a Christianity that left no room for fear. If you're not familiar with this brand of religion, it sounds a bit like this. Fear not appears in the Bible more often than any other imperative, which means it is a commandment, which means fear is a sin. And like this, perfect love casts out fear. If you're afraid, it means you're not leaning into the perfect love of Jesus. And like this, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, which means that fear is an aberration. It indicates unsoundness of mind, a brokenness that is not of God. I wish I were exaggerating, but I'm not. I grew up hearing these devout responses to fear all the time, and they messed me up for years. Instead of inspiring courage in me, they coated my ever-present fear in shame, guilt, and a deep sense of inadequacy. So when I read this week's lectionary and see Jesus asking his storm-soaked disciples why they're afraid, all my old insecurities and defenses go up. Why are the disciples afraid? Well, is it obvious? They're afraid because they aren't keen on drowning and because gigantic waves are scary, and because God created human beings with the necessary capacity to feel fear, and because sometimes our genetic makeups and or our early childhood experiences predispose us to crippling anxiety and panic. Honestly, what a stupid question. If we extend the meaning of drowning to include all the ways in which we human beings find ourselves in over our heads in this world, then Jesus' question sounds not only ludicrous but cruel. Of course we feel afraid as we face climate change and school shootings, Of course we feel afraid when broken marriages, sick children, unfriendly neighbors, grinding jobs, and financial uncertainty threaten our lives. Of course we feel afraid when biology or trauma betray us into anxiety, panic, and depression. And yet, is it really a stupid question? What if its meaning changes dramatically when we read it through the lens of the first question, the one the disciples asked Jesus as the waves threatened to capsize their boat? 
teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? I've had to read this gospel many times to see a helpful connection between the disciples' question and Jesus's, but I see now that a connection is crucial. What if Jesus' question about fear has nothing to do with the sea, the wind, and the killer waves? What if it has to do only with the disciples' relationship with him? Notice the first place the disciples' fear takes them. They have every right to be afraid when the storm breaks. Feeling scared in the face of danger is not the problem. The problem is that their fear does not lead them to lean harder on Jesus or to seek comfort in his presence. Rather, it leads them straight to suspicion, distrust, and accusation. Teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? What is their underlying assumption? That Jesus must not care. If he cared, he wouldn't be sleeping. If he cared, they wouldn't have to seek him out or wait for him. If he cared, he'd hurry up. If he cared, they would be safe. Needless to say, these responses cut right through me. I recognize them so well. Like the disciples, I am quick to assume the worst about Jesus when the going gets rough. When I face fearsome circumstances, my go-to position is not trust, it's suspicion. In my fear, I conjure up a God who is stony-faced, implacable, and loveless. A God to whom I am expendable. What should be a rich, vibrant, and multifaceted relationship between my heart and God's becomes instead purely consumerist and transactional. Okay, Jesus, prove that you care about me by fixing my circumstances. I'll do A, trust and love you, if you'll do B, protect and save me. One of the odd things about this lection is that Mark surrounds it with a perplexing set of contrasts. In the chapters preceding the coming of the sea, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as small, secretive, and quiet. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, so tiny it's almost invisible. The kingdom of God is like a sower scattering seeds, seeds so vulnerable they're often snatched by birds or choked by weeds. The kingdom of God is like a farmer whose seeds defy manipulation. They grow if and when they please. In the chapters that follow, however, Jesus manifests a kingdom of dramatic, supernatural power. He casts out demons, raises a little girl from the dead, heals a hemorrhaging woman, feeds 5,000 people with a few handfuls of bread and fish, and walks on water. To truly trust Jesus, then, is to hold two pictures of the kingdom in productive tension. Yes, sometimes Jesus demonstrates his power in miraculous, technicolor ways. We're not wrong to hope for such demonstrations. At other times, though, we need to trust in his incarnation, his quiet, abiding presence in our lives, is enough for the circumstances we face. Sometimes, Jesus' power is paradoxical and comes to us in what looks like vulnerability, like weakness, like sleep. The hiddenness of God, in other words, is simply that, hiddenness not absence. When Jesus asks the disciples why they're afraid, what he's really asking is, why are you afraid of me? Why do you still not trust that I love you, that I'm with you, for you, in you, and around you? After all this time, why do you suspect my heart, my intentions, my goodwill? Thankfully, the disciples do cross over in this story, not just from one shore to another, but from deep distrust to trembling awe. The question that ends election is a question grounded in wonder, in life-giving curiosity. Who is this man? Before the storm breaks, the disciples think they have Jesus pegged. They think they know what to expect of him. But they're wrong. He is powerful, yes, but he is also far more restrained, mysterious, and predictable and hidden than they have imagined. I walk away from the story convinced that fear isn't always an enemy. No human emotion created by God is always an enemy. Flattening out our emotions in order to declare spiritual victory is not faithfulness, it's lying. But when our fear leads us to distrust God and suspect each other, when it replaces spiritual curiosity with a dull and cynical certitude, then it's time to bring our fear to Jesus and ask him to transform it. 
Our work is always to cross over from fear to awe, from suspicion to trust, from certainty to wonder. No matter how high the storm waves in our lives, may we always rest in God's presence as we cross to the other side. For books this week, Dan reviews Peach, a novel by Emma Glass. This debut novel by Emma Glass opens when the protagonist narrator, Peach, a college student, staggers home one night after she has been violently raped. Her clothing is ripped, her eyelids are swollen, she spits blood from her mouth, her knuckles are scraped. She's sick to her stomach, she fears she might be pregnant, and she can't forget the smells of her attacker's charcoal breath clinging to my skin. And so begins a horrible psychosomatic challenge faced by every such victim. How to deal with the physical pain, the psychological trauma, and the vivid memories. This is where Glass's staccato and stream of consciousness style, full of alliteration and wordplay, works so well. Quote, I should forget. I will forget. I pinch my cheeks and try. I will try. Let's pretend this never happened. I don't want to be a victim. One of those victims. I'm a strong, solid person. On the other hand, she doesn't want to forget, nor can she. She wants to tell her boyfriend Green what happened. I should tell him. I wish I could tell him. I want to tell him. But she doesn't. Forgetting the event becomes easier when her parents are oblivious to what happened when she gets home. They are too self-obsessed. But it gets harder when she receives letters from her attacker. He knows her name and where she lives. And so Peach becomes paranoid. I'm so scared. Fear, rage, and hatred are ingrained in my brain when I shut my eyes. By the end of the novel, what started as a horrific attack ends up as a gruesome horror story of the worst sort of human transgression. There was a flurry of violence. Worst of all, and despite what she experienced, Peach says that she has no regrets, that she's even proud of how she responded. Emma Glass completed the manuscript of this novella before the Me Too movement, but she's nevertheless written a story for our particular zeitgeist. For movies this week, Dan reviews Human Flow. In July of 2015, after four years of house arrest in his native China, the dissident artist Ai Weiwei finally got his passport back. He immediately moved to Berlin as a refugee in exile. He thus brings his personal experience to the signature crisis of our age, namely the 65 million refugees all around the world who have been forcibly removed from their homes. This documentary film is an excellent example of how sometimes images are far more powerful than words. There is very little narration, except for the intermittent facts, figures, and interviews with experts from places like Human Rights Watch and the UNHCR. To make the film, Weiwei gathered a team of 200 people that filmed in 23 countries. There's Lebanon, where a third of the population are refugees, 30 million stateless Kurds, over a million Syrians in Jordan, which would be the rough equivalent of 60 million refugees in the United States. But these are people, and not just numbers and Weiwei lets his camera linger long on their faces and their stories, so that it becomes impossible to turn away from our fellow human beings. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, there were 11 countries in the world with border walls and fences. Today, there are 70 such countries. And the last stop in this film? The Mexican-USA border, where Border Patrol ludicrously shows the director where he can and can't film for 30 minutes. Dan watched this film on Amazon Prime. And finally, for poems this week, Maybe, by Mary Oliver. Sweet Jesus, talking his melancholy madness, stood up in the boat and the sea lay down, silky and sorry. So everybody was saved that night. But you know how it is when something different crosses the threshold. The uncles mutter together. The women walk away. The young brother begins to sharpen his knife. 
Nobody knows what the soul is. It comes and goes like the wind over the water. Sometimes for days you don't think of it. Maybe, after the sermon, after the multitude was fed, one or two of them felt the soul slip forth like a tremor of pure sunlight before exhaustion that wants to swallow everything, gripped their bones and left them miserable and sleepy as they are now, forgetting how the wind tore at the sails before he rose and talked to it, tender and luminous and demanding as he always was, a thousand times more frightening than the killer's sea. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for June 24th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.